If you're a fan of this show and you'd like a chance to steer the ship, that opportunity is available to you. We're already planning our season two of Grimdark History. And if you'd like to have a say in what we tackle on season two, you can do that by heading over to our channel on youtube.com at grimdarkhistory slash community. You'll find a post there with an active poll asking what your thoughts are and what the second season of Grimdark History should be. So head on over and have a vote. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. Amongst the blood and bolters of the grimdark future of the 41st millennium is also a wonderful hobby filled with positivity. Chaos Divided Podcast explores the joy, the excitement, and the artistry that makes 40k a beautiful hobby for everyone. Listen for new episodes every Wednesday, and you can find them wherever you get your pods. Before we get into today's episode, I'd just like to take a moment to thank everybody who's been uh, helping me, A, improve the podcast as this uh, evolves and goes along, and also just to everybody who's listeners who I've had a chance to meet and give me encouragement that they enjoy the podcast, which is great. Uh, another interesting thing I'm learning as I go through the podcast is uh, some statistics you get as a podcaster about episodes people are listening to uh, versus not listening to, and uh, that helps me understand the content that interests people. So it seems like you know the first little bit I've been doing these kind of zoomed out general overviews of basically the entire world uh, during a period of time that doesn't seem to interest people so much as these focused episodes that are going into into details about a a specific people place or time so i i think what i'll do is i'll i'll pull out the important parts of those uh, zoomed out views and uh, instead of doing a full episode on things that people aren't particularly interested, we'll just take the uh, interesting and relevant tidbits from the zoomed out view and we'll just add that into our more focused content. And hopefully that gives everybody something that they're interested in. Uh, as well, if you'd like to give me feedback, um, I can always be reached. I have uh, an email account you can email me at. It's grimdarkhistory at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter, uh, also at grimdarkhistory. Um, So you'll see if if you're doing Twitter, um, you, you can find that account, and I will be posting little tidbits of upcoming episodes uh, just to kind of wet your whistle a little bit and uh, it's also an opportunity to provide feedback uh, as well Uh, so thank you very much for listening so far and uh, let's dive into the show the topic of today's episode is uh, Minoan Crete 
and how that relates to the fictional world of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Um, you know, this is a history podcast, but uh, what our little kind of thing that we're doing here is really exploring how fiction uh, and history intersect each other. Uh, and just to just compare the, the little tidbits that are in fiction that we read that's popular versus reality and uh, just draw interesting conclusions about it and hopefully really get you excited and interested into looking into history yourself. Uh, I'm, as I said at the start, I am not a student of history. Uh, I'm not an educator. I don't really have any formal credentials in history other than the history courses I've taken at university. Uh, and I'm just fascinated by it. So I, I read a lot of history, explore a lot of history online. Uh, there are a lot of popular and high quality history podcasts out there. So if any of what I say or, or review interests you and you would like to learn more about it, um, definitely uh, do some of your own research. And uh, I've been going through a couple of other uh, books recently. And as I finish them, I'm going to be injecting some of that into my future podcasts and I'll reference those books as we go through it so you can, if you're interested, see what it is I'm reading uh, as we go through this. But to start off with, um, let's just take a little bit of a view of the, you know, a brief history of the Minoans and what our understanding is of them. And then we'll start digging into the details about the life of the people there and how that relates to the Warhammer 40,000 universe. So to start, um, you know, Minoans and the island of Mino uh, that they're on is Crete. It's uh, one of the main islands in the Aegean. And it's basically um, at the halfway point between uh, Egypt and uh, the mainland of Greece and Europe. So, you know, uh, the neighbor of Egypt is Libya. If you're about halfway, you know, on your road along the coast between Libya and Egypt, uh, and then basically uh, head north out into the Mediterranean Sea, you will run into the island of Crete. Uh, to the east of Crete is uh, another significant island, Cyprus, and uh, just to the east of Cyprus is the Levant. So that's the area where uh, Israel, Lebanon, Syria are today. And, you know, as if you've been following me in this podcast, we've been talking about Anatolia a lot. All of these areas um, are basically the neighbors if or, or close regional trading partners that are interacting with um, Turkey and the people living in Turkey during this time period. Now the weather in this area of the Mediterranean Sea, it uh, can be tricky, especially if you're living in 7,000 before Common Era and you're a fisherman uh, along the coast, maybe in the Aegean Islands or uh, along the coast of Anatolia, or from North Africa or Egypt, 
and weather and rough seas can uh, blow your boats uh, out, out into the Mediterranean. Uh, so how people initially believe the island of Crete became inhabited is a random people uh, potentially getting you know lost out into the Mediterranean Sea, whether through rough seas, whether through weather, uh, maybe a sail broke, uh, whatever that is, but people started eventually uh, winding up on this island since around 7,000 before Common Era. And the population of that island is made up of a lot of different peoples um, from around the Mediterranean area at that time. Um, so we'll have the uh, Anatolian farmers, the uh, uh, tribal people that were living in the Levant, uh, Egypt and North Africa at that time. Uh, as well as the uh, farmers and tribal people that were living in uh, Greece at that time. So uh, it's a, you can effectively think of it as a melting pot of various different cultures of people just kind of winding up here and uh, being effectively stuck on the island. Uh, now what's neat about that though is this island, it's huge. And while the western half of the island has a lot of mountains in it, um, there's a lot of little valley areas, and the eastern half of the island is uh, makes for pretty good farming. Uh, so uh, even though some people were getting stuck here and not all of them were surviving, uh, eventually people were surviving here. Once they found this place, they landed with the right uh, resources in their boats, they could survive. So um, this is kind of the initial early start of the Minoans. Uh, random people from various cultures getting together and building up their communities there. Um, now one of the fantastic things about the Minoans as we skip ahead a few thousand years and get into the Bronze Age is they are one of the preeminent civilizations for uh, shipping and uh, naval navigation. Now at the same time, the Polynesian peoples that make up the Polynesian islands way over on the Pacific, uh, they're doing island hopping as well and more longer range naval navigation and they're building some fantastic boats out there and also uh, roughly equivalent navigational knowledge of the ocean and shipbuilding technologies and this isn't a podcast that's going to definitively answer who got there first uh, i'm not for that uh, but what i am saying is between um, you know compared to the rest of the world the minoans at this time in the bronze age and the early bronze age were one of the preeminent civilizations in the world in terms of their uh, naval capabilities, their knowledge of shipbuilding, their knowledge of naval navigation. So if you combined their naval uh, mastery along with their prime location 
in the Mediterranean as basically the intersection midway point between North Africa, Egypt, the Levant, uh, Cyprus, and uh, Anatolia, along with Greece and Italy, is basically a midpoint. So these people are primed to become a major trading hub in terms of uh, moving resources and wealth and technology and knowledge around the Mediterranean. And that is what they do. Uh, that is what the Minoans are uh, uh, majorly known for. Now, the Minoans as a civilization um, lasted from, uh, uh, you know, dates vary here. So, so don't crucify me uh, if you do this, uh, but I've seen dates saying this civilization lasted anywhere from uh, 3500 BCE to uh, 1100 BCE. Now, dates vary. As I said, some people place it to 2700 BCE, some uh, to 1400 BCE, um, you know, we're splitting hairs where we're talking about something that far back. Uh, it's a few hundred year differential. Um, big deal. Uh, I'm not here to uh, be writing any sort of uh, scientific uh, paper on archaeology or, or the civilization. So for purposes of this, we can say they've been around for about 2000 years as a civilization. Now, as I said, it's centered on the island of Crete. We do not know what the Minoans called their, themselves or even their homeland. Uh, but we do have records because there's a lot of writing at this time. We know the Syrians called the island that they lived on Captera. We know the Egyptians called it, uh, and again, I may massacred this pronunciation, uh, but I believe the Egyptians pronounced it as Keftius or Keftu. Uh, it is the Mycenaeans who are, we will talk about a little bit because the Mycenaeans are the people who generate the myth of Theseus and the Minotaurs. Theseus is a Mycenaean Greek, uh, but the uh, Mycenaeans, when they eventually take over the island of Crete, they are the ones who name it Crete. Uh, so that's where we get the name of the island Crete from. It's from the Mycenaeans and uh, Theseus and his descendants. Now, speaking of the Mycenaean Greeks, if you listen to our first series on Copper Age 40K, uh, we talked uh, a lot about the Proto-Indo-European peoples and how uh, uh, groups of them split off, some of them moving into Europe and Greece and some of them moving into Anatolia and them uh, becoming the uh, precursor peoples to the Emperor of Mankind from the Warhammer 40,000 series. Well, parts of those groups that split off, uh, those are the ones that move into mainland Greece, and they become the Mycenaean Greeks. So those are the ones, um, you know, when we talk about Theseus and the Minotaur, the people who establish um, what we come to think of as Athens uh, and the uh, Greek city-states, those are the descendants of the Mycenaean people. 
Um, so they're Proto-Indo-Europeans or mixture of Proto-Indo-European ancestry with the uh, Neolithic farmers and hunter-gatherers that were in the area that they dominated as they came in. Now the island of Crete itself, it's beautiful and dramatic. I wish I could get a chance to visit it sometime. Uh, I would encourage you to just take a look at some pictures online. Uh, I'm going to fail uh, spectacularly in describing uh, the landscape, but it is a huge island uh, and it is uh, mountainous. Uh, there's lots of valleys and gorges though, so you can imagine the dramatic landscape that would be there. Um, lots of rivers, lakes, and uh, there's a lot of rich farmland um, in and amongst the valley areas, uh, but especially on the eastern end of the island, it's uh, fantastic for farming. And of course, you're in the Mediterranean, so uh, fish is a plentiful resource for you. Um, so the Minoans um, were basically living in uh, probably one of the most beautiful places on earth at this time. Uh, so if you do, if you can, just take a moment and just look at some of the pictures online you can find of the landscape of Crete uh, to get an idea of the uh, environment that the Minoans would have been living in. Now, as I've touched on several times, um, this is not a rosy world of uh, peace and flowers. Uh, warfare is a real thing and it is a near constant threat. Uh, what's interesting about the Minoans though is that while the rest of the Mediterranean uh, basically cannot exist without walled cities to defend themselves, the Mycenaeans on the main island of Crete do not have walls on their cities. So, you know, that tells us not necessarily uh, that they were in a relative peace with their neighbors, but it does tell us that they were not at all worried about being invaded on their island. Uh, now, we know from um, frescoes that have been found and archaeological digs uh, that the Minoans were a dominant force in the in the Mediterranean area, uh, not just with trade. They had several colonies uh, around the Mediterranean islands. Uh, they're famous for their uh, shape of their shields. Uh, so their shields kind of looked like a figure eight, uh, not that they were hollow, uh, but if you can think of the shape of a pear or you know it's kind of got the outline of an eight to it that's the shape of the minoan shields which is kind of neat might be something for uh protecting your legs and torso uh, but has that little curve in the middle to let you stick a spear through it and uh, hit your opponents with it and uh, so what people think is um, you know, the ocean or the Mediterranean Sea is effectively its own defense line. Uh, and the Minoan Navy was likely such that it would be impossible 
or not necessarily impossible, but the Minoans were so dominant in the naval area in and around their island that they had no fear of actual landing forces ever reaching the island. So the Minoan navy was likely an extremely dominant force in the area in terms of being able to protect the island and would enable the cities to develop there without having to worry about defensive fortifications. Piracy was definitely a big uh, concern. Um, there would have been all sorts of threat from uh, pirate raiders. Um, so the Minoan Navy, in order to protect their goods, they probably had to be seriously competent uh, at defending um, goods moving along the Mediterranean Ocean. Now we're going to get back to their military dominance uh, a little later on in this episode as we dig into uh, the story of Theseus and the Minotaur and again how that relates to the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Uh, but before we get there, let's talk about their trade uh, because they were dominant traders in the area. Um, now, they did not have access to resources uh, like copper or tin or bronze on their island. Uh, their economy was built on trade of goods. So they did produce wine and olives and figs. Like I said, they had great farmland uh, and they would trade for those resources. Or pardon me. They would trade those resources for copper and ivory, bronze, gold, etc. And the Minoans gained a reputation as being highly sought after artisans. Uh, you can take a look online and, and I'll uh, post it in my link as well. Uh, some evidence of uh, Minoan pottery. It's intricately designed and painted with uh, ocean motifs, octopus seems to be uh, you know popular motif with them bulls of course um, but they were well respected artisans and the influence of Minoan art can be found all over the Mediterranean. Now the Egyptians, uh, the nations in the Levant area uh, as well as Greece so the Minoans and the nations in Anatolia, so the Hittites, uh, would be among that those nations. We talked about them before. All of them uh, highly sought after uh, Minoan artistic designs from their pottery to their metalworking. They did a lot of impressive jewelry designs. And these things are found in the tombs of even Mycenaean nobles. Um, so that shows you how sought after uh, Minoan artisans were uh, during this time. The religion of the Minoans is a bit of a guessing game. Now, uh, there are, of course, a lot of people doing work on this, and I am not going to deliberately contradict any competent scholars on this. Like I said, I'm not a scholar on this at all. But uh, Professor uh, Nano Mar Marinatos, 
she is a one of the world's foremost scholars on Minoans. She has written a book, and I encourage you to find that book if you're at all interested in it. That book is called Sir Arthur Evans and Minoan Crete. Uh, Sir Arthur Evans was one of the first people that did the initial uh, digging of the Minoan Island. Uh, however, uh, her father was heavily involved in uh, overseeing that work. Uh, so it's, she's got some interesting pedigree in terms of knowledge of uh, Minoan civilizations, uh, but she is an expert in her own right, and she's done uh, a lot of analysis into the religion of the Minoan people. Now we have no, well we have writing from the Minoans, uh, but we do not know how to decipher it as of yet. Um, as far as I can tell, we don't know. Uh, there are people out there, I've seen some articles online, people saying they've deciphered it, people saying you haven't deciphered it, people finding words similar to other words in other languages in the area, which is fine. Uh, I'm not here to, again, end any arguments between competent scholars, um, but I'm operating from this podcast as though we have not yet deciphered uh, the language of the Minoan Greeks. Professor Marinatos tells us that the Minoans um, do not, uh, that we know, worship the traditional gods of Greek mythology as we think of them. That comes from the Mycenaean Greeks. Um, so the Zeus and, and Thera, Hera, Apollo, all those things. Now, if you remember uh, when I was talking about the uh, religion of the Proto-Indo-Europeans, uh, one of their gods, the sky god, was a, a fellow by the name of Deus. Well, uh, the Mycenaean Greeks have a god called Zeus, uh, but if we were speaking in the Greece uh, language or Greek language, we would actually pronounce that uh, Zeus. So Deus, you can see a definite connection between uh, Deus, the sky god of the Proto-Indo-Europeans, and Zeus, the sky god of the Mycenaean Greeks. Now they're different people than the Minoans. So the Minoans, as we know it, do not share their gods together. We do know that they worshipped a mother god of some significance. There's a lot of artifacts and designs, whether it's fresco or paintings on pottery or designs in jewelry or figurines of a mother goddess, often with her breasts exposed. A lot of the frescoes also show uh, priestesses uh, wearing similar garbs at different times as well. So um, now again, uh, correct, I may very well be wrong, you know, with my limited understanding and research I've done on this, uh, but it would not be um, rare to see perhaps uh, women on the island in general, but also priestesses uh, wearing clothing with exposed breasts. It was part of the religion, 
part of the culture and a way of connecting with the mother goddess. A lot of the artwork uh, that's found in the Minoan period uh, has very little depictions of males in scenes of authority, which is interesting. Our first conclusion might be, especially if we're uh, maybe looking at this from a feminist perspective or maybe a modern uh, modernist perspective, is that this is perhaps a matriarchal or a matronly dominated society. And that may be the case. Uh, however, I am yielding uh, again to the expertise of Professor uh, Marinatos, who's been doing research basically all her life into the culture, religion, and life of these peoples, to say that despite the artwork representing female people, almost universally and when the male people are depicted on the artwork they're typically depicted as smaller and subservient to the female people uh, that would indicate from professor marinatos is that the artwork is really depicting the mother goddess being uh, the superior being to basically all the other people in the art uh, so the males there that are there maybe her children maybe her consort or lover, uh, they would be subservient to her because she is the giver of all life and everybody came from her. Uh, now, Professor Marinatos does not believe that just because the artwork depicts very little men that there aren't males in dominant positions. I still like the thought of, uh, despite uh, you know the entire rest of the um, Mediterranean world at this time basically being dominated by uh, male kings. I still like the uh, idea fictionally uh, that there is an island that is dominating the entire Mediterranean Sea with their naval power that is run by women. I, I think that's awesome. Priestess, priestess women or matriarchal female kings, you know, queendom matrilineal descent of who rules the nation I, I think that that would be really cool um, and maybe there's fictional work out there and certainly there's been scholarship out there that uh, puts that out there but I am yielding to the expertise of uh, Professor Marinatos on this still I, I like the idea of it anyways now, even though we don't have a uh, fantasy island of uh, Amazonian Minoans dominating the Aegean Sea, we do know that women had very highly respected roles in the society. We believe that there were kings on uh, Crete that there would be a per likely, well, not likely, definitely, especially in the later Minoan period, there is the one city uh, people w mostly think of uh, Knossos or Knossos uh, as the capital of the Minoan Cretes. That's where the labyrinth supposedly is, and King Minos is 
from the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. While on the island of Crete, there are also several other smaller cities. Cities in their own right, but cities. And they appear to have been subservient to the central authority that would have operated out of Knossos. And this is a serious city in the Bronze Age. It's estimated the population to have been somewhere around 100,000 people living in this city. That's a super packed island and city. And aside from the king and the other uh, regional authorities subservient to the king, there was obviously a queen. And the queen and the king were the heads of the religion. So we have a kingly authorities and a priest class, and we have a mercantile class moving goods around and we have a naval authority dominating the area and we have workers in the fields and the king and queen also being the heads of the religion have religious authority now I know I talked about in my last episode religion being a tool for controlling the masses. That's very much a modern perspective, a little bit cynical. But as much as some of us may understand it to be that way, we really need to think about it in terms of their perspective. It's unfair of us to back project our own modern ways of thinking on somebody who has uh, very limited uh, knowledge and experience in terms of the cultural evolution of the rest of the world. Religion was real. The gods were real. If you were a priestess or the queen and the head of the religion, you had a very serious duty in order to protect your people and the island and whatever religious tasks and duties you had, they had real measurable impact. And if your job as a general person on the island was to provide animals to be sacrificed, from their perspective, and I don't mean just the perspective of your everyday Joe, but the perspective of the king and queen and the priest class is this is a very serious and holy duty that you had. And to not take part in that duty had very real risks and impacts, not only on you as an individual mortal, but on the community as a whole. Understand that the job of religion was not necessarily to control people. That's what it did as a default. But the job of the religion, from their perspective, was to protect the people. You had to appease the gods, give them their due, show them their respect. And in return, they didn't destroy you. 
or in return, they blessed you with good harvests. Now, interestingly, when we get to Babylon, we'll touch, we'll touch on Hammurabi and uh, his code of laws, but even in his code of laws, he explicitly mentions um, that gods have an impact. He talks about if the storm god destroys your crop, well, you don't have to pay your dues because the god has destroyed your crop. It's not your fault. So we have to imagine this is a contemporary of the Minoans. These laws, this way of thinking is contemporary at the time, and these people, again, are all exchanging ideas and religion, technology, ways of doing things. So there are priests, kings, and queens in Egypt. There are priests, kings, and queens in Anatolia, in the Hittite uh, civilization. There are priests, kings, and queens in the Babylonian region. This is a very common thing in this area. And even though to follow the religion and the religious practices generates control, it generates subservience of the population to the priest class, that's a side effect. That's not a design of the religion. It's a side effect of the religion. The design of the religion is to enable the people to interact with, communicate with, uh, and to receive the divine intervention or wrath of the gods. So, uh, you know, failing your duties was not just something that impacted you as an individual. It impacted your entire civilization. It impacted your family. It impacted your town. It impacted your city. Earthquakes were not random tectonic events. Neither was volcanic eruptions. Neither was droughts or floods. These were the failures of the civilizations to do their duties to the gods. And this isn't just the priest class cynically twiddling their fingers together and twirling their evil mustaches and coming up with more ways to generate wealth for themselves and inequality. That's us in our 21st century cynicism back projecting into uh, thousands of years and it's not fair we have to look at it from their perspective and understand um, how important and significant uh, the priest class was as an intermediary with the divine so when you see the priestesses in their clothing uh, with the exposed breasts. This isn't just a, a uh, symbolic act. This is them attempting to interact with the divine forces. It's important. 
and we went down a bit of a rabbit hole tangent on um, the role of religion and how it's important for us to not be cynical when we look back at the roles and the people that played their jobs at that time because basically one of the only jobs women had that we were aware of was being in the priestess class or working the farms being weavers they might have been potterers maybe worked um, with skins tanning leather that sort of thing but certainly being a priestess was a very significant well-respected job that was a job that commanded authority because you as a priestess was the intermediary between the divine forces and the regular population your job was to interpret the will of the gods or god or goddesses or mother mother goddess whatever that was and make sure that whatever your interpretation was kept the gods happy so the civilization could flourish if you failed in your job the entire civilization suffered you can understand how critical a role that would be imagine a king their job to negotiate and work with other civilizations for the well-being of the entire uh, civilization of their own they might declare war work an alliance with a neighboring ruler negotiate trade agreements law disputes developing tax systems administrative management of central authorities in order to make sure your people flourished in a temporal way in a material way the job of the priest and priestesses was to do the same thing only instead of negotiating uh, a trade agreement with Egypt the priestess negotiated uh, a healthy harvest with the mother goddess I know we gave you 30 goats for slaughter last harvest and you gave us a good harvest well we we've got uh, our goat population tripled well we're not going to give you 30 this year we're going to give you 60 and we hope that's good enough for you it's their job to interpret the will of the divine and make sure they negotiate and you didn't really negotiate with the gods you just gave them what they needed and their job was to make sure the civilization kept the divine happy in order to be successful in order to enable the king and the kings to work with the temporal rulers around them to also be successful it was uh, an extremely critical job so when we talk about a woman's role in the priest class we shouldn't think about it as though there's some Catholic nun sitting in a nunnery somewhere maybe working with the poor but not really doing anything 
They were working with the divine, making sure the civilization kept running. That's how critical their job was. Now to get back from my tangent, back to the Minoan religion, we have to talk about bulls and the relationship of bulls to the religion, to the divine. Now, if you listen to the previous episode where I had our fictional retelling of the Theron tsunami from the uh, collapse of the volcano caldera on the island of Thera, destroyed the city of Akrotini, buried it in ash, sent a tsunami across the Aegean Sea, and it slammed into the northeast side of the island of Crete. Our uh, fictional Minoan trader, as he's in his goods, if you recall, his wife and his daughter were members of the priest class, and they were heading up into the mountains to what I called the horns of concentrate, pardon me, to what I called the horns of consecration. I didn't just pull that term out of my ass, pardon my language. That's a term used by scholars to describe uh, the intersection of the mountains and the horizon with the sky. Now, the horns of consecration aren't unique to the Minoans. You can find uh, this exact symbol, two horns intersecting with the sun on the horizon. This symbol exists in Minoan sculptures and art, of course. It also exists, pardon me, it also exists with the Egyptians and the Babylonians. The symbol is known as the Akhet. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. I apologize to other people. Pronounce, or pardon me, spelled A-H-K-E-T. It's the symbol of the sun and the sun goddess rising between two mountains on the horizon. And you can find variations of this symbol in Egyptian art and religion, and in Babylonian art and religion, and in other religions and art around that area. It's a common symbol. So the theory of why bulls are sacred to the Minoans, if you could look head on at a bull, you've got the head of the bull and two horns arcing up, kind of looks like two mountains and a horizon in the distance. So the theory currently is Egypt or pardon me is the Minoans worship the bull because the bull with its horns was basically a living representation of the sun goddess and their communion with the sun goddess. So that's the story currently 
And again, apologize if there are other scholars out there listening to this or people with better knowledge than me. Uh, I'm pulling this together based on uh, my understanding of uh, other people's work on this. But the running current theory is the Minoans worshipped bulls and their horns because it represented this horns of consecration. And on the island of Crete, up in the mountains, are lots of religious sites. So it's theorized that religious practices would often go up into the mountains to be intersecting with the sun, the sun goddess or god, in order to be as close as possible to commune with them. Well, we're on the topic of Minoan religion and art and how those things are depicted. I want to take a moment and hop down a little rabbit hole. If you look at frescoes of uh, Minoan uh, art, especially in the main palace at Knossos, you will see depictions of griffins flanking the primary throne room there. Now, griffins aren't unique to Minoans. They're depicted in Egyptian art. It's in Greek mythology. The Romans believed in it. So did the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And one of the things that uh, might find as an interesting tidbit, remember I was always have been talking about how trade has been pumping and moving goods around the world and how the first horse people came from the steppes area. Well, goods are moving back and forth there. It's not just raiders coming around. Um, we have periodic uh, periods of warfare, but we're also doing lots of trade with all these people. And in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia is a lot of gold basically laying on the ground near the mountain ranges there. That's where uh, a lot of gold at the time comes from. It's in um, mountains to be mined but the people in that area uh, don't have to dig very far in order to find gold nuggets. And according to the uh, mythology of these people, is griffins live in this area. Griffins live in this area. That's where they lay their eggs. They're born there. And brave men brave their bodies and souls to go into the mountains and grab gold from griffin nests and run away. Well, uh, one of the things you might find if you were to walk into those areas now, the mountain ranges on the edges of the Gobi Desert, is a huge protected archaeological zone. And if you do a search on the internet for protoceratops, you will find pictures 
of an animal that's got four legs, roughly the size of a lion, that has a skull with a large head on it with beaked mouth. Kind of sounds like a griffin, doesn't it? Got a tail, four legs, lion-sized, with a beaked head. Protoceratops. Tail, four legs, roughly lion-sized, with a beaked head. You have to wonder, did nomadic traders from the Eurasian steppes bringing their gold with them and their art, did they also bring stories of ferocious lion-sized griffins and their bones in the desert that people may have fought over ancient times? So just a little tangent there. Um, there are some other podcasts on that. Um, Sebastian Major, he did a podcast. He runs a podcast called Our Fake History. He did an episode uh, specifically on griffins. If you want to dive down this rabbit hole, uh, go find that podcast. Again, Sebastian Major, Our Fake History is his podcast. And I believe the podcast is called Were Griffins Real? So just wanted to touch on that. Uh, just because if you're looking at anything with Minoan, uh, Minoan heart, art, you're going to see the Palace of Knossos in photographs, and you will see the pictures of the griffins flanking the throne room. And it immediately brought to my mind uh, the protoceratops and the griffin tie-in uh, and how gold uh, was achieved happened to be in basically a protoceratops graveyard in the desert that you didn't have to dig to find the skulls. So uh, again, neat little tidbit. Uh, sorry, we, we got off our tangent, but we'll, we'll get back to Minoans now. I've touched on a, a little bit about the central uh, city there on the island of Crete the city of Knossos, Knossos. In my own mind, it's hard for me to figure out, do I pronounce that K or is it silent? Is it N? Is it N? But let's just call it Knossos. And uh, if you're a, a Greek listener, please let me know if I'm wrong. I would very much love to know it actually. I'm sure I am, uh, but I always love to hear it from the horse's mouth, how it's really said. But that city, it's not small. As I said earlier, uh, population at its height estimated to be about 100,000 people living in the city at that time. That is huge for the Bronze Age. That shows you how good everything is there how wealthy they are how much food is there how much space is there they're building multi-story houses when i say multi-story we're you know 
one to three stories tall. And their stories are, pardon me, their homes are made of wood and stone. Painted frescoes are on the out insides of the walls. Beautifully bright painted pillars. And if you listen to the previous episode where we had our fictional Minoan trader, I described his house, what that looked like. That's typical of the nobles and the palace at Nosos at the time. Now the palace, it's unfair to just call it a palace. We believe that yes, it was a palace. The king and queen and his family lived there, but it was also a multi-purpose facility. It wasn't just their home, it was also the central area where the priest class operated out of. It was a central storage facility for storing goods. It was a huge administrative complex, multiple buildings. It wasn't just, you know, one home surrounded by stone walls and turrets. Like I said, they don't have defensive fortifications. They just have effectively a maze-like structure of buildings, multi-stories tall, which would be extraordinarily imposing to other people coming to that area. Building anything bigger than two stories, especially out of stone, was a significant engineering feat. The Egyptians are doing it. Babylonians are doing it. Not too many other people are doing it, especially not out of stone, certainly not on an island, certainly not in multiple areas of the island. So these are um, wealthy people building imposing, impressive structures, and yet uh, they're not imposing in the way Egyptians and Babylonians are building their structures. You know, Egyptians build pyramids and temples that dominate the landscape. If you go to the city of Thebes, you can't help but see the massive structures that are there. If you go to the city of Ur, you will see the ziggurat from miles away before you even get to the city. Nosos and the Minoans do not subscribe to the uh, design aesthetic of dominating the landscape. Even though they build large buildings, they're not designed to dominate the landscape. Their buildings is uh, much like Japanese aesthetics. You have um, movable walls and windows to let the outside in. Probably has a lot to do with the humidity that would have been there. Let as much air move through as possible. But the design aesthetic 
is really to build wide, not tall, and to paint it and make it look beautiful, not imposing, and to uh, have multi-purpose facilities. You don't march to the temple. You go to the temple slash castle slash noble house slash administration area. It's a multi-purpose facilities and a multi-purpose facility by its nature would need to be huge in order to service not only a population of 100,000 people, but the movement of goods for basically the entire eastern half of the Mediterranean. By its nature of being multi-purpose, of serving a population of 100,000 people, and to facilitate the storage and moving and administration of goods going through the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, it would default to being huge. Maze-like would be a way I would like to describe it. So you might imagine being a Mycenaean Greek who was uh, being sent to the island to go pick up some goods for your lord and your first time visiting the city of Knossos and somebody at the dock says, oh yeah, head to building XYZ in the central palace complex and you make your way through the city streets, which have plumbing by the way, probably one of the cleanest smelling cities in the area, not too much disease wise. You make your way through that city and as you get closer and closer to the central palace complex, you're getting into larger and larger crowds, carts with oxen or maybe donkeys drawing goods in and out. It'd be dozens and dozens of cartloads, people. You'd be shoulder to shoulder. You can imagine it feeling a little claustrophobic, especially as you get closer and closer to the entrance to the main palace facility. And as you finally get in there, goods going in and out, your first time there, people going left, right, which way and that, and you have your little clay tablet that says go to building XYZ and you ask the local guard hey where is building XYZ and he tells you head down this road here take your second left take your another left then hang your first right then your second right uh, and then go two buildings down and it'll be uh, your second floor and then on the second floor you want to have your first left and then your second right and then go downstairs and there's your goods well that might be pretty confusing for somebody whose entire life has been spent thinking one-dimensionally they have they deal with only one story they have a building next to the building is a barn Next to the barn is your storage area, and you load your goods in and out. You go down to the dock, take it to wherever it needs, 
that's the limit of your experience your entire life and then somebody sends you to a city that's a hundred thousand uh, strong into this facility built of stone multi stories and you've got to think not only am I going to the building on my left got to go left right left right two lefts then a right up the stairs this is the second floor the third floor downstairs finally get to my goods now I have to get back with my goods that's what I in my head I imagine it being like for somebody who spends their entire life basically dealing with a one-story building and being on the ocean it would feel like you're going through a maze you might even describe it as such when you get back home man those Minoans are crazy how can they get through the maze that's nuts but I have to go through there once a year to collect my goods for my Lord because he gives me this little tablet I can't read I just somebody hands me a tablet go here give the tablet to this person follow the directions give the tablet to person X take your load you almost need a guide to get through the city get to your goods it would be extremely disorienting us in our modern era you know it's not that confusing for us to think in three dimensions going up down third floor right floor two lefts and right and down but for somebody whose entire life has been dealing with uh, maybe a few dozen people in their local village and only one story to suddenly have to go to city hundred thousand strong and navigate that structure and organization not only are you going into a warehouse district you're going into a warehouse slash palace slash administration slash church district overwhelming now we're almost there we're almost to Warhammer 40,000 and how it intersects with the Minoans there's one last thing I want to touch on before I pull everything together and we paint our big picture we started on it at the start we talked a little bit about Minoan dominance of the region there's different ways you can dominate an area you think about the United States they've got military dominance one of the largest armies in the world they've got economic dominance they've also got cultural dominant dominance exporting their art whether it's movies television it influences their area so when you can think about dominating other societies intentional or not you can do it militarily march your army over there threaten to kill some people maybe you do kill some people take some slaves take some goods take what you want leave them crippled such that 
you can go back and do it again next year and they can't put up a defense. That's one way to dominate somebody. That's the way it was happening in the early Uruk period. It's the way uh, it's happened all over the world. There's economic dominance. The world needs bronze. Remember I talked about it in my first episode of the series, The World of the Bronze Age. Bronze is the crude oil of the Bronze Age. Civilizations do not properly function without it in some form. You need bronze for tools. You need bronze for weapons. Gold is good, but gold doesn't do you any good if you don't have an army to defend yourself with. And you can buy an army with your gold, but that army had better be armed with bronze weapons and armor. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself on the wrong end of a spear. Remember that 300-pound gorilla with an axe I keep talking about? The Minoans have no fear of invasion of their central island. There are no fortifications there. They have no fear because they militarily dominate the sea around their island. Their navy is no joke. Their army is no joke. Talked about the shields. Very unique shape to them. They also use spears, helmets. Often had um, armored with uh, uh, boar tusks. And I don't mean like a Viking helmet with uh, you know the, the stereotypical one with uh, horns sticking out of it. I mean, you take uh, the ivory from boar teeth and carve it up into little plates. Layer that on your helmet and you've kind of got a, a primitive form of chain mail. Only instead of chain, it's ivory, boar ivory. You can call it ivory mail, I guess. Armor is made with that. It's made with bronze, made with leather, made with a lot of things. Uh, but unique to Minoans is these uh, uh, boar uh, tusk helmets. They dominate some of their neighbors. And uh, the Mycenaean Greeks are some of those people that are dominated. That's what we believe happens. And the story of Theseus and the Minotaur is a, uh, potentially, one theory, it's an ancestral memory of that dominance. Now that doesn't mean that the Minoans crushed the Mycenaean Greeks under their thumb. Remember I talked about trade was happening. And, and it's hard to think about the Mycenaean Greeks as uh, dozens, maybe even hundreds of separate entities, but that's what they are. Each city-state is its own central thing. Little village here, the Minoans might have um, a problem with them and dominate them militarily. But maybe in the city-state of Athens, they have a trade agreement. Maybe 
with the emerging city-state state of Troy. Uh, they also have a trade agreement and maybe with the city of Argos. Will they have a beef with them? That's what it would be like. And it wouldn't be like that constantly. Generations change. People change in authority. Moods change all the time. You might have um, good relations one year, and then in a decade, it might sour for whatever reason. People are people. We're all mercurial. So the Minoans, with their superior naval technology in their prime location in the Mediterranean, dominate the local trade. And sometimes this is done uh, in concert and cooperation and in the spirit of mutual economic benefit with some cities and people. And sometimes it's done in the uh, military dominant form where I'm going to take your stuff and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, I'm sure everybody is familiar in one form or another to the gist of the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. Theseus is a Greek prince who goes to the island of Crete into the labyrinth he navigates the labyrinth with some thread. He kills the Minotaur and he leaves. Give or take, that's the gist of it. You know, the, the main highlight points, the Coles Notes version, the cheap Coles Notes version. We're going to go into a little bit more detail and then we're going to talk about the Warhammer 40,000 connection. So uh, there's multiple versions of the story, but in general, the king of Crete is a fellow by the name of Minos, and he prays to the god Poseidon, the sea god, for favor. And the god Poseidon creates a white bull to honor Minos and Minos is supposed to sacrifice that bull back to Poseidon to honor Poseidon. Now you remember what earlier when I was talking about religion and how critical it was and how it was the responsibility of the heads of the religion to navigate between the divine and the population or be punished well king minos fails in his duties as a religious intermediary instead of doing the right thing and sacrificing that bull back to the god he decides he's going to keep that bull and instead sacrifice an inferior animal instead well poseidon is not having any of that and instead of punishing the population which would have entirely have been within his rights to do instead he punishes the king 
and he punishes the king by making the wife of the king fall in love with that bull. And so she convinces Daedalus, who's a genius architect, an engineer living on the island of Crete, to build a contraption that looks like a female bull that she can get inside and it will attract this white bull from Poseidon to mate with it and by mating with this bull thereby mating with her and that will satisfy her and that's what Daedalus does that's what happens and she gets pregnant and she gives birth to an animal that is half man half bull and divine and also of royal blood now I say that he's divine and of royal blood because that's important because this is a horrific beast it's a disfigured human hybrid you might think why wouldn't you just kill the animal you can't it's against the law to kill a divine being it's against the law to kill someone with royal blood so rather than kill someone with royal blood or a divine being and risk further wrath from Poseidon they decide to build a maze and in the maze they put the Minotaur child who as he gets bigger begins eating the population and so rather than have the population become victim of this Minotaur they feed it slaves captives from conquerors now the king of Minos that is in his only problem having a half divine half royal blooded human animal hybrid in his dungeon he has a son who dies in some form or another it is the fault of the city of Athens and so while he's dealing with this Minotaur problem he also has the problem of his only son is dead and it's the fault of somebody else so he gets his army together and he goes to the city of Athens and there's a brief conflict in which the Minoan military dominates the Athenian one and the Athenians owe him regular tribute in the form of slaves slaves which he uses to feed his Minotaur problem now this Daedalus guy the genius engineer who uh, builds the uh, sex machine he also builds a elaborate labyrinth slash dungeon with which the Minotaur can be contained but cannot get out of and every year 
they release some humans into there and the Minotaur captures them and he eats them over the year. And that way the Minotaur doesn't die. The Minotaur doesn't terrorize the population. Uh, King Minos, he's short one air, but at least his population isn't being uh, devoured by the human hybrid divine uh, bull thing. And so, um, you know, the Athenians, they're not having any of this. Well, the son of the king isn't having any of this. After a few years of sending regular sacrifices, Theseus, the prince, he decides he's going to put an end to this. And he stows away with the annual slave tribute. He goes to the island of Crete, and in some forms of this story, one or both of the daughters of the king of Minos falls in love with Theseus. He's just that kind of guy. You see him, and you immediately want to betray your country. But they fall in love with him. And they go to Daedalus and say, Daedalus, this guy's really hot. I, uh, I don't want him to die. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd like to bone him instead. So uh, what can we do about that? And Daedalus says, well, you know, I, I built that maze and uh, there's no getting out. Uh, but... Uh, you know, if he happens to survive the Minotaur, uh, give him this thread. And uh, he can tie the thread or leave a trail of thread, maybe a trail of breadcrumbs, who knows, Hansel and Gretel, in order for him to find his way out of the maze. So Theseus, hot Theseus, his, his uh, inhuman, ungodly hotness, whose mere presence triggers immediate betrayal of your country and your father. Well, the daughter of the king of uh, Crete, she gives the thread to Theseus and says, survive, take me with you. I want to be your wife. So he goes into the, the maze, somehow dressed as a slave, manages to sneak a sword or a club, or in some stories it's just his bare hands, uh, but he sneaks a weapon into the labyrinth along with his thread, and he navigates the maze, he does battle with the Minotaur, and he slays the Minotaur. Now... I know you're thinking earlier, but wait a minute, Jeremy. This is a uh, royal slash divine being hybrid, and it's against the law to kill him. Why isn't Theseus struck down by the gods? Well, Theseus is also a divine being slash human hybrid. His father, Aegeus, is a divine human hybrid 
from Athena. So Theseus has that divine blood on him. And he is permitted to kill uh, the Minotaur. And then he leaves. And in some of the stories, he takes the daughter or both daughters with him. And in some stories, he doesn't. In some stories, he abandons one or both of the daughters on an island. You know, thanks for saving my life and everything, uh, but uh, you're really not my type. And, uh, uh, you know, I think I'm just going to leave you here. You got to imagine the shock and disappointment on her face, betraying her country and then left abandoned on some island somewhere. But regardless, that's the gist of the story in all its little uh, humorous quirks. But I think we should talk a little bit more about the Warhammer 40,000 version of that story because that's where we get really grim dark. We've painted the picture of um, the Minoan people, their culture, their religion, some of their warfare, how they interacted with the rest of the Eastern uh, Mediterranean, their trade, their art, their skill, the politics, the architecture. We've painted uh, a, a picture of the life, and I hope as we've talked about this, you can by now visualize a Minoan person in the city of Knossos dealing with uh, an Egyptian trader for some goods. But now let's talk about the Warhammer 40,000 version of that. So let's start by uh, setting the scene. In the Warhammer 40,000 fictional universe, there is a character called Olanius uh, Pius or Olanius Pearson, P-E-R-S-S-O-N, and much like our God Emperor of Mankind that we talked about in our 40K uh, Copper Age series, Olanius Pearson is a immortal human. He's what's known as a perpetual in uh, the Warhammer 40,000 fictional universe. He's someone who can't be killed. Well, you can kill him, but he will just come back. Now, uh, the Emperor of Mankind, as we established in our 40K Copper Age series, was born approximately uh, 2500 to 3000 BCE in Anatolia. Olanius Pearson is born uh, approximately 8,000 BCE in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh's in Babylon. 
It's in uh, the area of uh, uh, southern Iraq. It's near the Gulf Coast, not quite there. So roughly same regional area, just a few thousand years older. Now, uh, where we established that because the Emperor of Mankind's ancestors were the Proto-Indo-Europeans, he's one of the first people that are lactose tolerant, and he's able to drink milk into adulthood. Uh, Olanius Pearson is not so lucky. He's lacking uh, that genetic trait. So he'd be lactose intolerant. Just a little tidbit there to throw out. So uh, we have somebody who's been around since about uh, 8,000 BCE, literally in the Stone Age, the Neolithic. He's gone through the Stone Age Revolution into the first uh, copper tools. In fact, uh, the area and region that he comes from is one of the first ones in the world to start using copper as tools. So innovative people. His, this person migrates around. We don't know really much about him, but we do know from his own uh, tidbits and pieces that he tells us is that he is in the Aegean Sea at the time of the King of Minos and the time of the Minotaur. In this time, he is with uh, what would be, we would know, Jason and the Argonauts. He is an Argonaut, although in the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, he's playing the role of Theseus. So he would be playing the prince of the king of Athens, Aegeus, but he is also assumes identities like the emperor does. And when he is with Jason and the Argonauts, one of the people that are in and are amongst the crew of the Argonauts is a fellow by the name of Athalides. Maybe Athelides. I'm not very strong in my Greek pronunciation. But Athalides, he is the son of Hermes and a princess from Pythia, another demigod. Athalides has a unique trait amongst the people in the crew of the Argonauts. Athalides' soul is immortal. He keeps reincarnating. Athalides, every time he dies, comes back. He comes back by a, as a fellow by the name of Euphorbius, Hermotimus, Pyrrhus, and Pythagoras. So, kind of a, a little interesting theory where Olanius Person is... Uh, Pythagoras from the later Greek period. But uh, to get back to our little tangent of Theseus and the Minotaur, we don't have a lot to go on, but we'll describe 
a section from the novel The End and the Death, Volume 1. Minor, minor spoil alert here. We're just going to read a little paragraph or two. But Olanius Person is making his way through the bowels of the Imperial Palace to attempt to get to the throne room and the Emperor. And as he's navigating his way through the Imperial Palace, room after room is gigantic. Cyclopean would be a term we would use if we were explaining it in terms of how Minoan and Mycenaean architecture looked. Room after room, looking exactly the same as the other. And Olanius, to quote, feels it too. He tells himself it's just his imagination, but it truly feels as though they are walking some implausible stately labyrinth. He has a poor history with labyrinths. He still has bad dreams about Nosos. He wants to ask Litu if he can borrow the skein of thread the Astartes carries in his bag so he can tie knots to finials and moldings and the fingers of gilded statues and mark their way for fear they are not simply doubling back on themselves. Perhaps they are. Perhaps he, he being the emperor, already knows they are here and is playing games to deceive and confuse them. Perhaps he has no interest in the distraction of an uninvited audience and is keeping them at bay with his psychic wiles. That would be just like him, delaying the inevitable. I will find you, all mutters. What? says John. Just thinking aloud, says all. Litu, I saw you carry twine in your bag. Can I use it? The Astartes pauses and then produces the ball of red thread wound around its fid. He hesitates before handing it over. It is the property of his mistress, and he is loath to give it up. All takes it with a nod, cuts off a short piece, and ties it around the ankle of a golden statue, and he tosses the twine to Zybes. Every chamber we come to, Hibbet. Every chamber, he says, do the same. That's it. That's what we have about the story of Theseus and the Minotaur is a claustrophobic, panic-stricken memory of walking through a room where every room looks exactly the same as the last and a feeling of some unknowable thing using psychic wiles to keep you from making any progress to turn you around, back to right, left to front. And the only way to navigate it is to produce something that makes each room look a little different so you can trace yourself back and know if you're going the right way. In this story, 
the maze and the minotaur are elements of the warp, a dimensional space where time and direction are meaningless, where left and right, up and down doesn't mean anything, where one second can equal one hour or can equal negative minutes. And it doesn't matter if you walk from one room to another, you can wind up walking back into the room you just left. You know, if you uh, have ever seen the uh, movie The Labyrinth from the 90s, maybe it was the late 80s, there's a scene where the main character is trying to get to her baby brother and she's making her way around rooms, stairwells that go in all direction, every which way or the other. And I got to feel uh, that old person's probably feeling that kind of disorientation. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk into one room then walk into another room and have it look exactly the same as the room you just left. You look back, okay, I'm definitely in another room and it looks the same, and then you go into the next room and it looks exactly the same as the previous two rooms. And you got to be wondering what the hell's going on. Why is every room the same? And then maybe you make a left, then a right, keep going straight, Go upstairs, downstairs, and it doesn't matter which direction you go, every room is exactly the same. Start to panic pretty quick, wouldn't you? I would. I'd start freaking out. And then some people you would imagine might panic, maybe run off, just trying to get ahead of whatever spell or effect is causing the problem and make the problems worse. Well, all has dealt with this problem before and he knows the solution from Daedalus. Tie a piece of string on a statue, go to your next room, examine the statues there. Okay, we haven't been in this room before tie a string on a piece of statue, go into this room. Oh, we've been in this room. The statue has a string. Let's go back. Hang a left this time. Straight has no meaning. The way to navigate is ethereal, like negotiating with the divine. It's mercurial. This is the period of time that old person is dealing with in his role as Theseus. This isn't the only ethereal warp cursed place that he's run into in the Greek islands. There's another quote from him uh, reminding himself of the sirens all does not think of them as trumpeters. Last time he met anything like them, creatures of similar breed, it was multiple lifespans ago in the Cyclades, and they were called sirens. It's just another word. No better than trumpeters, no worse. The only thing all knew then 
and Jason agreed at the time was that the creatures did not come from the Cyclades. They did not belong there, no more than the trumpeters belong here. They were from an elsewhere that had nothing to do with this world or any other. They were like a damp or a rot that had leaked through a wall from the outside. The noises they made, they would drive a man mad, and if he had to listen to them for long, they would make him forget himself. Make him forget. So we can tell from these two bits of text that the warp has been a thing of influence in the history of mankind for thousands of years. We know, uh, at least from mythology, that Daedalus is the person who builds the labyrinth, and Daedalus is also the person that builds the contraption which enables the wife, king of Crete, to become impregnated and give birth to the Minotaur. In the fictional world of the Warhammer 40,000 universe, we would probably call Daedalus not necessarily an engineer, but probably some kind of sorcerer of the warp, somebody who has access to the other world, who can call it out for doing uh, dangerous things. So Daedalus is a person of extreme power in this world and also of extreme danger. He's not just an engineer. Uh, the full story of Daedalus, he tries to kill his nephew because he's jealous of how good he is at also being an engineer. So I would imagine uh, within the context and lore of the Warhammer 40,000 universe, we would say Daedalus is someone who has knowledge of how to um, integrate the warp into uh, technology and architecture that he builds to enable it to do miraculous things. And he teaches his nephew, Talos, his trade, his knowledge in engineering, his knowledge in how to utilize this uh, power of the warp to make technology do miraculous things. And Talos is so talented that Daedalus becomes envious of him and that he tries to throw Talos off a cliff. The gods save Talos, turn him into a bird, and Daedalus flees to Crete. And in Crete, he builds the contraption that enables the queen to give birth to this uh, half-divine, we would really call half-warp, half-human uh, being. In the lore of the Warhammer 40,000 universe, we would probably call this a possessed person. So he builds some contraption 
to enable a human being to either give birth to a possessed entity or to enable a human being to become possessed by something from the warp. And then uh, perhaps realizing that, you know, after trying to kill his nephew, after building a contraption to either enable uh, somebody to become possessed or to enable somebody to give birth to a possessed being, uh, perhaps out of some feeling of guilt or maybe it's not guilt at all. Uh, maybe he was looking for some way to explo exploit this Minotaur creature. He builds a uh, dungeon with his knowledge of the warp to enable it to get lost inside it. Maybe the dungeon is only 20 rooms wide, but because of its uh, ability to disorient people, and uh, make people lose time, make people forget, as the old person describes it. It's a way to control the entity of the Metator. And then finally, old person comes along and ends the Metator. But this doesn't stop Daedalus Daedalus has a son, Icarus, and Daedalus teaches his son the same knowledge of how to utilize technology. Daedalus and Icarus build their famous wings and go flying, and then Daedalus watches his son Icarus fly too close to the sun and watches him first burn up and then fall into the ocean and drown. A Daedalus eventually dies, bitten by a snake, a rather um, ignoble death, but this is not a good man. This is a man who tries to murder his nephew, builds a contraption that enables a warp entity to possess a human being, then builds a dungeon to enslave and prison this human being and finally watches his son use his own technology and knowledge to murder himself doesn't really murder himself but you get what i'm getting at here and then finally as he's wandering alone nobody willing to employ him anymore Hard to blame them. Can you blame somebody for not wanting to employ uh, an inventor who gets the king's wife possessed? He dies after being bit by a snake in a small town in either uh, the Nile Valley somewhere or in a Greek island. This is the ending of Daedalus, our a mysterious third party with whom uh, we would not be able to tell the story of Theseus. Probably the more interesting story, actually. But as we dig into our next part of the Bronze Age series, we'll be talking about Babylon and the Tower of Babylon. 
and we'll have some more interesting stories to tell. Uh, we have more text on Babylon and uh, the tower. An old person shows up there again, uh, but our main character, the emperor, makes an appearance. So stay tuned for our next few episodes as we dig into the Babylonians. First, the historical reality and then the fictional intersection. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope it's been interesting. Uh, again, uh, if you have any feedback, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Grim Dark History. You can also send me an email. Uh, grimdarkhistory at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you found it interesting. Uh, and if any of this stuff interests you, uh, please feel free to, uh, not feel free, I encourage you to do your own research. Greek mythology is fascinating. So is the Minoan period. And, and I hope it's interested you too. Uh, so thanks again. And uh, have a great day. Goodbye.